0: Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World
1: if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. you.
2: No matter what the role is that you intend to play in a conspiracy or in a particular crime group, if you're one of our targets, you better be ready to go to prison. Nobody expected that in broad daylight there would be a murder. We target all levels. We will continue to target all levels. And I believe that nobody is beyond our
0: reach. I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. She started out as a rookie drug squad cop on the streets of Dublin's north inner city when dealers like Tony Filoni, Roly Cronin and Thomas the Boxer Mullen were heroin kingpins pumping poison into their own neighbourhoods. Three decades on, Detective Chief Superintendent Angela Willis is the head of the Garda's Drug and Organised Crime Bureau. This week, on the fifth anniversary of the Regency hotel attack, she tells me about guns, drugs and the greed of gangland as Garda move in for the final takedown of the Kinahan mob. So how do you dismantle a mafia? What has changed in the underworld since those first drug lords were brought to heal? And what is it like being a woman in a man's world? This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. you came in you started in the middle of that developing period when the north inner city was producing guys like Tony Filoni who was willing to you know poison his own community get his own children hooked on drugs and make a fortune out of it and you started off in Store Street and at that point in the early 90s there wasn't half as many people drug dealing at the time. You were able to, you know, on one board, have your targets. And and you were telling me earlier, you worked very closely with the community. How did it work and how did did that start? Um, So I started off um, in
2: the early 90s in Store Street and very shortly after I was um, assigned to the North Central Divisional Drug Unit and in that unit, our, our whole strategy was engagement with the community. So the community basically identified the targets for us. So whoever the community identified as the people that were causing them the most misery, the most harm, that were feeding their children with heroin, they were the targets that we um, identified and that we pursued. And like you say, there were, certainly weren't as many as what there are today. And it was, I suppose, easier to identify all of the key players in the community. Um, and it was that whole, I suppose, close link with the community that, that enabled us to, first of all, identify the people that we needed to um, target and then to enable us to actually apprehend them. And so, how
0: did you go about it? Like, where do you start? Okay, say you have an individual, just for namesake, Tony Filoni. He's living in the area. Like, what do you do? So Tony lived up
2: in Dominic Street Flats um, and he lived up there with his children and um, extended family. So I suppose the techniques back then, we, we... Develop, see what what's his lifestyle, what what is he doing? So we we right. watch him, yeah. do some surveillance on him, and um, then people in the community living up beside him they can see comings and goings from his house or his uh, part of his flat that he lived in, um, and through that engagement, knowing the right time to search that flat when there potentially would be heroin inside because that's what Tony Putoni sold. Um, and that's, that's that was in. the strategy. Yeah, mm.
0: that's how you... you See, know. that might seem obvious to you, that mm. you, you, you sit back and wait. You need patience in your gig because you can probably put hundreds of hours into surveillance on somebody, but if you move at the wrong moment, it's wasted.
2: Exactly. So that's you have to
0: catch them with, as hands-on as you possibly can. And... Um, yeah, you have to, You look, you have to catch them and you have to
2: have enough evidence to support a prosecution to bring them to court and have a criminal justice outcome where ultimately the aim is that they will end up in prison and that they
0: cannot cause any further harm to the community. And back then, would the seizure have been important? Because I get the impression that nowadays the seizures are secondary to catching the individuals, you know, are as many individuals as you can. There's been a huge amount of successes over the last few years where multiple convictions have been um, garnered from one operation. But back then, you know, a hundred grand's worth of drugs was probably a huge seizure, was it? Absolutely. Uh,
2: very significant. And that would have a very significant impact within that community. And that kind of a seizure could actually cause a drought for a number of weeks because it disrupted the supply chain. um, um So it, I suppose it was it was a two, two-pronged two approach. We obviously wanted to get them with as much product as we could, but also we wanted to make sure that it was the right people we were targeting. And that's the same strategy we have today, whereas, and, and you're right, the, the amount is actually secondary. It's the targets and the level within an organised crime group that, they are at is what is our primary aim yeah. to, to ultimately dismantle
0: those groups so you talk about you know you're in store street there was a good relationship with the community and actually i know quite a few of the lads from store street who still have a great relationship with the community and they'll be they'll know by first name the street traders walking up and down here in talbot street and all the rest of it it's um it is still a community no matter no matter what has happened but did you get a fondness of it and did you feel back then that you were making a change that you were helping that you were you were going to give the kids a brighter future well i suppose that's what it's all about making that difference if you can
2: for a community um and yeah absolutely i have i still have a fondness for the community around the north inner city and i still might meet some of those people that I dealt with back then. And, you know, 25-odd years later, I still know them by their first name. They know me. And we can reminisce about the old times and the, you know, the tough times that they endured. Um, Just trying to rear their children um, and trying to prevent them from dying from the scourge of heroin that was back then.
0: And did you feel, and was there a feeling, that? you were going to make the difference that you were going to... Did you ever feel you were going to crush it? Or did you know, even back then, that this thing was probably bigger than any of us and you could really just, you know, it's a bit like whack-a-mole, isn't it? You're sort of uh, targeting one and someone else pops up. Was it? Was that same sense back then? Well, I suppose that's the nature. You know, you take somebody
2: out and somebody else fills that void. That's the nature of, of what we do. And there were probably always be somebody there to fill that void.
0: Do you know were you more were you
2: more sort of were you less cynical? I'm sure you were. I suppose I was young. I, I thought, you know, we can we can, you know, wipe this out. Yeah. But um sadly, you know, sure, that nobody, hasn't been the case. Nobody knew what mm. was
0: coming and, you know, nobody could have foreseen, I think, how it was going to turn out and how it was going to seep into every fabric of the community which it has. Um, there's a report just released there last week and it is about intimidation and violence in the area and how people are living in fear. Um, it is 70% or more of the population have been intimidated within the community, um, all drugs related. and But only one in five would report that intimidation. And I think probably what's happening is that's all that deep sense of omerta that exists as well benefits the drug dealers because it doesn't benefit the community. Um, But it has seeped in there and there's a real sense of fear. I think they've actually seen, you know, it's not a perceived sense of fear. They've actually seen people being shot dead on the street. They have seen people being injured. Windows smashed in, they've seen it. So it's it's the fear is a is a reality to them. But that sense of community, I think, and you would have experienced it as a young guard, is quite resilient too, isn't it? Then in, in that in that community. Um are the same people still fighting for the community or um some of them are,
2: mm. and then obviously a lot of new people have come on board as well. So I suppose we've more formal structures now between um our local drugs and alcohol task forces, um, our local community policing fora and our joint policing committees. So that's more formal structure where we can engage and we engage with the community. They identify what their priorities are and we respond. And just in relation to drug intimidation, um, we have inspectors in every single division in the whole country um, who are trained to deal with the issue of drug-related intimidation we work very closely with the National Family Support Network. And that's all part of the National Drugs and Alcohol Strategy, which is a um, health-led approach to tackling um, the issue of drugs in the community. So those inspectors, um, all of them are identified on both the Garda website and on the National Family Support Network uh, website. Those inspectors can actually assist any family that's uh, encountering drug-related intimidation, Um, and we would urge people to contact them, to make contact. You don't have to make a formal report. If you don't want to make a complaint, we're not going to force you into that situation. But at least if we know about what's happening, we can then do something about it. And it may not be that we will prosecute anybody for a particular um, piece of intimidation they've done, but there might be other ways that we can target that individual and take them out of circulation. Um, and you know, target them if they're supplying. Generally, it's because they're supplying uh, drugs themselves. Um, we can target them, make them become our targets. But we we need the people that are the victims
0: to come forward, to come forward and tell yeah. us about that. And I would, I mean, always say the same to people. From anecdotes I've heard over the years, it seems to me that you could be told today you owe twenty thousand. You could come up with the money and pay it, but tomorrow you could owe 30 there's it there's no like structures around it and it's just if you pay they're going to come back for more aren't they it's it's a yeah. it's a disaster to sort of succumb to the blackmail or to the intimidation ultimately well i suppose it depends on what's right for the individual mm.
2: so we don't advise people on whether they should pay or not pay but we'll work with that individual and the national family support network and other agencies that are out there they will work with the family mm. and they will come up with the best solution for that particular family in that particular circumstance because every case is different. So, you know, and it, but it is it often happens that um you pay one debt and then the debt there's another one, and then it's bigger and it's bigger. And if 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 you're perceived to have that ability to pay you know, there will come a time when you can't pay anymore. Yeah. So you have to actually do something about it. And that's why we would and urge seek people. seek assistance, basically. Seek assistance, mm. come, come, come forward and we'll work with you and we'll find a solution that's um, suitable for
0: you and that also deals with the issue that's there. You've obviously carried that sense of working with the community and the that whole sort of relationship with the local community through your entire career. You You believe in that absolutely because i suppose we police for the community and with the consent of the community
2: so it's a we exist to support the community
0: so that's and on any level you know presumably information and help from the community whether it's it's low level street drug dealing to the kind of the massive high level um investigations you've carried out in recent years it's pretty much the same thing. It's information mm-hmm. coming in and relationships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And everybody knows what's going on in their own community
2: around them. They see things, they mm. hear things. And they have that ability to actually do something about it, should they wish. And they can do that confidentially,
0: clearly. Talking about your job and going into the job and choosing the job, um, did you have family in the guards or did you have any anything? Was of anything that drew you or was it something you always wanted to? No, I've no family in the guards. Um
2: it's something I've always been interested in, but I wanted a job with variety. Um that was, I suppose, one of the key things that I aimed for. You didn't want to do the same thing every day? No, absolutely not. Well you got so, that <laughs> in in abundance. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So you just—it was something you were drawn to. You wanted to go into it. Did you have any expectations about what it was going to be? Did you think you were going to, you know, solve the problems of the world, and do you know, or how did it compare to what you expected?
2: Yeah, I suppose I—I I really hadn't thought it out fully before I—I I went to Templemore, um, and then I landed in Store Street, one of the busiest districts in the country. So um, I'm not sure what expectations I had. But...
0: um, It was a baptism of fire there. It absolutely was. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for sure. And um, do you know, was there many women working the drug beat at that time? Or were you
2: one Um, of the only ones? No, there were two. um, I think we had two sergeants and 12 guards. So there were two females. And um, ten,
0: well, uh, yeah, ten males. And uh, did that make a difference? Did you ever think of that? Did it ever come on your radar, even? No, it didn't really, because you were part of the team. Yeah. So it didn't matter that you were
2: the female on the team. You were you were part of the team, and I never felt that, you know.
0: I was just there as a token or anything like
2: that. Was, I always
0: think that's nearly the individual, isn't it? Yeah. It's how you feel yourself about yeah. it, whether you can, you know, if you're if you're working in a male-dominated world, sometimes somebody else has to point that out to you. Yeah. If you don't feel it. Because you don't notice it. it's You know, I've been sort of used of
2: that environment all through my career. So I'm not... Um, it's not something that I take much notice of. And of course now we have many more females in the organization than we had back then. Um, which is really positive. And um yeah, so it's 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 not noticed, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not there to be noticed anymore, I suppose. That's and did the, you
0: work undercover?
2: Um, no. Well, I was part of that drug unit, so yeah. it was a, a, a you know, it, it was semi, essentially, yeah. a covert unit, but um I didn't do you know, the undercover, the deep undercover work?
0: No, because presumably also if you're working in the area and people know you, you can't yeah. do it. There's no sort of uh, false glasses yeah. and trench coats going on. It's just the 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 old films. Um, policing has obviously changed a huge amount over those decades and uh, this technology has come in and all the rest of it. But are the basics principles still there? You, we've spoken about the the need to... Well, communicate and and have, I suppose, a trust build up with people giving you information. But you, know, basic policing, is probably still the same, is it?
2: I suppose the things that I've noticed have changed is um, obviously technology has has moved on, um, and technology has many benefits in communication, but it can also facilitate organised crime. So while traditionally um, the drug problem was it confined to geographical areas, usually areas of deprivation. Nowadays, it's a global business. So, you know, borders and um, different countries, it, it doesn't matter. The criminals will are facilitated in operating globally. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we have to keep pace with that. And there are advantages, obviously, of um, developments in technology. And we also utilize those advances to our benefit and that means we can collaborate more easily and more readily with our international partners so therefore we can ensure that we target people beyond the local geographical area, beyond this state and you know, create some impact upstream as we like to call it um, and target that whole supply you know we don't grow heroin here okay. we don't grow cocaine here You know, I suppose the only drugs really that are um, cultivated here are cannabis in some growhouses. So all of that product has to come in. Firearms have to come into the country. So therefore, that approach um, where we collaborate with, you know, our partners in the Police Service of Northern Ireland, um, with the National Crime Agency, and further afield, that ensures that we can keep pace, I suppose, with the developments that have arisen.
0: And um, share your information, which has been absolutely very much part of the success of the last yeah. five years in particular. And sharing that information in real
2: time. You know, I'd say there isn't a day goes by that somebody in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau isn't on the phone to a partner in some other law enforcement entity somewhere in the world. Mm. Um, and that's that's how we...
0: How it, it was all, has gone. So the job yeah. has basically become very global for you, whereas where you started, it was a small little sort of community of the north inner city. While it still has the problems, your job has, has become very much global. I mean, look, this week is going to be the fifth anniversary of the Regency hotel attack, the famed moment when that explosion of violence so publicly really put organised crime on the political map. We were in the middle of a general election at the time. And I think there was a sense of, for the first time, a lot of people started looking at that Irish mafia, the Kinahan organisation, and how vast they had become. I know for me at the time, I wondered how in the name of God would you even start with it? It had just got so massive. It was in so many countries. They had so much money and they were embarking on a feud here in this city, which had to be policed in one way, but on, on a bigger level, was it a bit panicky to look at the likes of the Kinahan mob and how big it had become and to wonder where to start with it? Well I suppose you
2: always start nobody expected you have to start that, somewhere. Yeah, but well you have to start somewhere. And I suppose the Regency nobody expected that in broad daylight um there would be
0: a murder of such um it was a very significant in yeah, gangland terms that murder yeah. it was not going to be left lie it was going to be avenged and i think everybody felt that black cloud coming mm-hmm. after that that murder that day
2: so i suppose in march 2015 which was just if, almost a year before that murder the garden national drugs and organized crime bureau had been established and that was an amalgamation of the Organised Crime Unit and the Garda National Drug Unit. So the Bureau was well resourced. It was part of the policing reform. So we were in a position to put the resources that were required into tackling that particular organised crime group and others. And I, the approach we took was that we we targeted it at all levels. mm mm-hmm. So if you, you will recall recently, there was um, a case concluded before the Special Criminal Court where nine members of a murder squad were convicted, were all convicted. Um, and they were all convicted for their individual roles in a plot to murder a prominent member
0: of Hatsy Hodge.
2: Yeah. So I suppose our approach was we were going to target everybody that was involved and engaged in that behaviour. So from the people of in the morning that had the firearms in their hands, ready to murder Patsy Hutch, to the person who acted as lookout on the morning and was able to say when he left his house, to the person who bought SIM cards for mobile phones. And that approach where we target every individual level of the gang. And all of those people, all of those nine people, are now all in prison serving sentences. And I suppose the number of murders last year, gangland murders, it's at an all-time low. So the approach that was taken has achieved the desired outcome in that. Um, and that's not to say that the two gangland murders that occurred, um, you know, that that's not a desirable situation yeah. either. But from, from the numbers that we had in the preceding years, it is a demonstration, I suppose, that the approach that we're taking is actually working. A lot of the work we do in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau is around preventing murders from happening. So, threat to life operations. So, we've so far engaged in 75 such operations. And some of those um, cases involve the same person multiple times. And
0: that's all since that February 2016 Well, since March 2015. Since the the establishment of Of the the Bureau. Bureau. Yeah. Yeah. And last year,
2: that number, the the number of threat to lives that we had to intervene in, was reduced to two. And again, that's another demonstration of the success that has been achieved because many of the people that are willing to engage in that kind of behaviour, they're all
0: serving their sentences now and they're all in prison. Yeah, because I totted up this week um, the amount of people that are in prison and I'm sure I've missed some. But I have counted related to feud-related crimes, there is more than sixty in prison. Some of them still awaiting uh, trial, but most of them actually convicted on serious charges. Thirty of those of the sixty are um, hit squads, as you said. Spotters, you know, every 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 job basically within a hit squad has been targeted. And that um, operation you spoke about where there was nine convictions, I think in the history of the Garda Chukona, it was probably one of the most expensive operations, but one of the most successful. And you are actually coming up with proper, you know, policing results from a thing like that. Um, when you sat down after the Regency, was the plan then to target the cell structures that made up the, the mob and and was it, as you say, to go after everybody on the periphery?
2: Yes, and I suppose the strategy is to dissuade people from becoming involved in organised crime and demonstrating that no matter what the role is that you intend to play in a conspiracy or in a particular crime group, if you're one of our targets, you know, you better be ready to go to prison. Mm. Because it doesn't matter what your role is, you're still contributing to the, you know, that that group can't operate without all of the component parts
0: operating. Absolutely. And mm. I think a measure as well of the, the, the quality of the investigation has been the amount of guilty pleas you've had because I have been in and out of courts over the last five years watching a few of them. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's all over because they're just coming out and they're not even going to to fight their case because the level of, of evidence is so good. And I suppose that's a testament
2: to the people in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau and the calibre of people that are there and the ability that they have to put really good investigation files where they can present the evidence in a clear manner um, to put them together for the information of the DPP and ultimately for the information of the courts. And And as you point out, because the evidence is so overwhelming in some cases,
0: that's why the guilty pleas um, arrive. Come in, um, yeah. yeah. There's been comments made as well over the years about legislation. Some of it has been is being brought up to up to speed, um, sentencing, all of that that's around. It sometimes it's unfortunate when you stop somebody being killed that the guy who was going to do it gets a lesser sentence because they didn't get around to actually pulling the trigger. It seems um, they get off lighter, but that is is changing. Well, I suppose sentencing is a
2: matter for the courts and our job is to present the evidence mm. and then leave the rest to the courts. Um, obviously, we would never want a murder to happen. So we've achieved our aim once we've prevented the murder mm-hmm. and then the
0: rest, as I say, is for for the judges to determine. So going back to those kind of figures, because they are extraordinary, and the last five years has been an absolutely incredible time in policing in this country and in the history of the, the Garda um You know, there's a couple of individuals within that 60 who would be way up there, right up the top, one of them currently before the courts and... Uh, Thomas Bomber-Kavanaugh, who has pleaded guilty in the UK and his sentencing is just currently delayed because of COVID uh, restrictions. But nonetheless, he's facing a a hefty, hefty sentence. Um, People would wonder, and I don't know how much you can tell us about this, but that, you know, the others, the top end, those that are still abroad, perhaps those who've directed a lot of the crimes that have happened in this country, you know, can you say anything to us about are they still, do they still remain under investigation? Are they still part of that original plan that was 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 set up uh, when the Bureau was developed? And can we hope to maybe see them before the courts? Well, as we, we target all levels.
2: We will continue to target all levels. And I believe that nobody is beyond our
0: reach. Okay, so hopefully nobody will will slip away into the sunset, as sometimes it, it appears. But um, and again, I suppose that's the value
2: of international collaboration, where we can where our targets become targets of our partner agencies, and where their targets become our targets. And it's that working together, that collaborative approach, and that sharing of information, that um, will hopefully ultimately
0: ensure that we can, that nobody is beyond our reach. I presume over the past few years as well, I mean, there has to be an element of the right people who are in the right jobs in different uh, in different organisations. That, you know, there is personality as well there, isn't there? It's not just, it's not just policy. You, you have to have the right people. You absolutely have to have the right people.
2: And that's, that's where, again, people in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau They're committed, they're dedicated. They make lots of sacrifices. You know, uh, the operation that we, we talked about, it was a very lengthy operation. There were many very long days and long nights in the lead up to the intervention that happened on the morning when it happened. So people are willing to put in that sacrifice. And without that determination and that resilience, we certainly wouldn't be achieving the results that we are And there was a second
0: HIT team removed as well. Um, Again, they were left under surveillance for a long, long time. I presume when, and you you will be directing these operations in your job, it must be a bit, you know, get palpitations to know when to actually move in, because if you don't do it on time, you are looking at the loss of life. So, you know, that must be quite a... uh, Difficult decisions to make at times, very critical decisions. Um, but again, we have
2: the right people; they're very skilled, highly trained, um, and they have that ability to make those critical decisions when they're when that decision needs to be made. Um, do you think that academia can be brought into policing? Is it useful? Absolutely, and. I suppose at the moment, all of our recruits they undergo a level seven um, diploma in policing, and then we've also developed a level nine postgraduate serious crime investigation um, program, um, and we work closely with, um, for example, this year um, there will be people in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau undertaking courses with uh, the University of Limerick and UCD, and these are bespoke modules that are developed between our organisation and the relevant uh, university to deal with a particular policy area or particular issue that we need to um, provide training. And 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 that gives that whole, you know, you have the academics coming with the academic piece and then you have the practitioners. So that whole collaboration um, and developing bespoke training, um, it is very, very useful. the future
0: of policing yeah. as well, I imagine. Yeah. So, um, can you measure for me the effects of removing, for example, one firearm for the street from the street, one consignment of drugs or a stash of money? We saw in, in recent months there's been quite a few, for example, uh, investigations which have led to the seizure of uh, money vacuum-packed and obviously ready for transport out of this country. What can the effects of that be? Well, I suppose the removal of firearms... Diminishes
2: the ability of organised crime groups to commit murder with firearms. Also, targeting assets in all of our investigations, we will also we will always look at the assets accrued by a particular group, and we work closely with the Criminal Assets Bureau in that regard, and also with the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. So, by removing, I suppose the the motivation. The motivation is greed and is accruing money. assets. So by removing that, you're, you know, diminishing the value that the criminals get from from what they do. And I think that, that, you know, if we seize significant amount of cash, and last year we seized 8 million in the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau alone, that disrupts the flow of consignments of drugs coming into the country, and therefore it reduces the availability of drugs back in the community. So,
0: it has a knock-on effect. It has a knock-on effect. So it reduces their ability to go buy their next consignment. Exactly. They've problems, and then you know they'll they'll. And obviously, the firearms clearly, mm-hmm. each firearm could result in any amount of murders, murders if if so desired. Mm-hmm. Um, you have seized a huge amount of firearms in the last few years, over a hundred. I think we're at one hundred and thirty-three at the moment. Right. Um,
2: so last weekend, we seized a firearm and ammunition, and up to the end of 2020, we had 132 firearms of all various calibres of weapons, from machine guns to pistols to handguns. And where are they coming from? They're all coming in uh,
0: from abroad. Yeah. Um, Through the UK, largely? Potentially. Yeah. Some. And, um you know, has Brexit, it's a bit too early to say, has that disrupted a little bit of their their transport in the same way it has the certain stuff on the supermarket shelves? I suppose, as you say, it is a bit early to say what
2: Mm. the full impact of um, Brexit is. Um, I suppose if we look at the pandemic at the minute, that initially did cause some disruption. but Criminals will quickly adapt and therefore we have to be in a position to respond to that. And we have to quickly adapt Mm -hmm. our response to deal with... um, You've obviously had
0: no... There's been no decrease in the supply of Coke, for example, coming out of Colombia. It's increased. And the demand... I I, I still find it hard to believe that the demand hasn't reduced with no pubs or clubs open.
2: Yeah, the whole nighttime economy um, all during 2020 has obviously diminished. Yeah. That's where we would see most of cocaine use occurring. Um, but I suppose our our activity in 2020 for um, offences detected for supplying drugs, not specifically cocaine, but across the board, that was up 26% in 2020. So we have seen no reduction in the, you well, know... Well, in your amount. successes as opposed yeah. to what's
0: actually happening because... Mm-hmm. There's always it's difficult to monitor anything really, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's a it's an underworld, it's a secret of um it's a secret of business and there is people have long thrown out that ten percent of what you guys get, we must, you know, we is 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 ten percent of what's coming in. I don't know whether you what you feel about that figure. It seems to have been floating around for years with no proof attached to it, but I suppose there is no proof attached to it
2: and it's like how long is a piece of string Mm. but I suppose we continue to you know target at the highest levels Mm -hmm. and at all levels um, through local drug units Um, in 2020 we had a lot of additional resources put into local drug units and and that increase in the number of detections is attributable to the increased numbers and also to all of the checkpoints that have been um, undertaken across the country and the increased visibility of guards doing those checkpoints and, you know, making
0: it more difficult for criminals to actually move um, their drugs around. Yeah, there's been opportunities there, really, with the pandemic for for the guards, I think. And... um, you know, surely it has, surely it has made a difference, and everything is more difficult now. So it has to be for the mm. for the criminals as well. We'd like to think. Um, do you do you still have meetings and conversations with victims and their families? Do you still are you you know are you gone too high now that you're not you're not in touch with the community anymore, or do you still have? No, we still engage um, with the community and with support groups that
2: support the communities. Um, and I'm still very, you know, aware and very conscious of the different difficulties that exist in,
0: in various communities. Because mm-hmm. it's important sometimes, I think, to keep in touch with yeah. what's going on on the ground. I mean, your career mm-hmm. is obviously soaring, but, you know, in the end of the day, you're still, um, you know, you're still working for the community. Absolutely. No matter what you're, what your ranking, you know.
2: Yeah.
0: And, um, What's the camaraderie like now within the force in general and and particularly in the the DOCB? Um,
2: I suppose we have a unique camaraderie in the guards. And a lot of that is down to particular situations we deal with. So a lot of the time we can't go home and talk about what we've dealt with in work. So therefore, I suppose our work colleagues become our second family. um, And they're the people that... You know, they're the people that we can offload whatever is going on to, you know. So um, we have a fantastic team in Duckby, Um And I suppose, again, and it's down to the caliber of people that are there. You know, um, the nature of what we do, everyone looks out for each other. So there's this fantastic camaraderie there.
0: Journalists are a little bit similar. Sometimes, you know, they get bored listening to you at home or else it's something that is just not really shareable with the outside world. So we do tend to knock around together a bit Mm. and, you know, mull over. It's a bit of counselling, I think. Yeah, exactly. Hanging out together. But, um, you know, I often look at individuals who, I think a lot of criminals eventually believe something and it connects a lot of the big, big boys out there, but that they, I think they believe they're bigger than the state and I think that they, you know, their ego feeds into that and they believe they can take on the state and that they are generally untouchable. Um, I never think any of them are, but how do you feel about that? i everybody that, yeah. policeable? Absolutely. And as I
2: said earlier, there's nobody beyond reach once the right collaboration is there and, you know, the right dedication to actually targeting them, um, I don't think there's anybody. And I think we've demonstrated that down the years um, in various things that have happened, that,
0: you know, nobody is untouchable. And sometimes the bigger they become, the smaller their world becomes. And they might have loads of money, but it can't necessarily protect them from mm-hmm. the law. And, um, do your friends, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave you go soon because you've been, you've been very interesting and, and really good to give us your time, but do your friends think you're a bit mad or do they find you interesting? Like, do you find yourself sitting at dinners and hoping to God people don't start asking you about your job? Um,
2: I suppose the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, it's fascinating from the outside. You know, there's a lot of high profile cases dealt with, um, a lot of high profile arrests, big seizures. And that all can appear to be very exciting from the outside. But I suppose people may not realize all of the hours that have gone into putting that good file together for the DPP or, you know, waiting for the right moment and making that decision at the right time to make an intervention. So I suppose that's the piece that people might miss that aren't involved. Um, but... Um, the boring yeah, stuff. Yeah, they probably think, yeah, maybe they
0: think that it's
2: I'm sure a they bit always, bizarre. I'm
0: sure they always build up the courage to start asking you questions that you can't answer. Um, and finally, I'd just ask you, um, is it a good career for a girl, for a woman, for a female, for a young teenager out there who might be, Looking for something that you once were, which was to go into a career where every day is different. I've enjoyed every single day of the of the
2: of my career to date, and that's not to say there haven't been days where you know there've been tough times and challenging times, and you've dealt with um, very difficult circumstances. But I would certainly encourage anyone um, seeking some variety in their life to consider um, becoming a guard and not just girls but you know yeah. men as well and the whole you know male female thing it's it's not it's not there anymore there were traditional roles that would be done you know undertaken by men many of those roles are now undertaken by women such as the role that I'm I occupy today um so you know nothing is beyond your reach and you know I would certainly encourage people to join the Guards. It is a wonderful career. It provides huge opportunity,
0: huge variety, and uh, no two days will be the same. It will be the same. And there's no glass ceiling, obviously, unless you you see one for yourself. Angela Willis, thank you very much. That was uh, a fascinating insight into into what's going on in policing this ongoing effort against organised crime. Thanks